Welcome to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I am Lowell Thompson, and my lifelong love of learning saved my life. A few years ago, I was in and out of the ER and ICU with no end in sight due to, at the time, a mysterious illness. I read medical journals, talked to scientists and researchers, and learned how to develop a good treatment plan, all of which put me on the path to becoming healthy, which I am now. I have met the team responsible for creating the drug that saved my life. And now I'm taking my experiences and love of learning and translating them into interviews with experts, CEOs, and scientists in order to achieve three goals in every episode. To have fun and interesting conversations that are enjoyable to listen to, to learn what these people are developing and creating, to hear what their tactics, strategies, tools, books, and resources they use to accomplish what they were doing, so that you can learn, apply, and see what else is out there and enrich your life with every episode. Additionally, I am running a pre-Kickstarter campaign right now over at monoliths.kickoffpages.com. It's M-O-N-O-L-Y-T-H-S.kickoffpages.com. Check it out if you want to show your support and see what I'm up to. Today we are joined with Adam Warmflash. He's an astrobiologist and science writer. He got his MD from Tel Aviv University. He's worked at a variety of places, uh, NASA, you name it. But today we're really digging into his latest book called Moon and Illustrated History, From Ancient Myths to Clo- to the Colonies of Tomorrow. And the basic idea is to kind of get a sense of like, why he wrote this book, what's in this book, why would you want to read this book, and uh, get a sense of him at the same time. Without further ado, we're going to just jump right into this, and you can start listening to me uh, having this interview with uh, David Wormflash. And if you're interested in his book, it'll be in the show notes. I'm always curious, like, how do you, how do you, how do you split the difference between like fact and fiction? Like, how do you discern the difference and account for that without like leaving out some of the the nuanced stories that maybe doesn't have a lot of uh, like firsthand accounts? Like, how do you like discern fact from fiction? And then, are there examples in your writing that you had to leave out in your research that you think are probably true, but that you just didn't have the facts to like wear them out? If that makes sense. There were things I had to leave out because there wasn't enough room because they, uh, I had to follow a very specific format of the illustrated history series of Rolling Crash uh, where I had a hundred vignettes that I could write, a hundred moments in the history of the moon. And I had enough when I first uh, came up with the proposed table of contents. I had maybe 120, 125 uh, possible moments, and some had to leave out, and some were able to fuse together. Is there other stories that you wish you could have added, if you could have had like complete uh, autonomy on it? There was one about Benjamin Franklin that I didn't include. That that was one of the ones I had to cut out. Uh, what else? Um, what's the what's the Benjamin Franklin one? I'm a big, I have Benjamin Franklin's biography right there. Oh, cool! I like Benjamin Franklin. Well, I was going to include him because I thought I wanted to have something set in uh, early U.S. history, uh, since we are in the United States, and he because of the Poor Richard's Almanac. So he he was connected with the moon because he made fun of astrology about how he was one of the earliest people who kind of poked fun at astrology, um, showing how ridiculous it was. And he did that with kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, little writings in Poor Richard. And it was, it was connected with uh, where the moon was and something like that. So that would have been a way to do it. Um, 
but we had to we had to cut that because there were it came down to that was one of the last few that that didn't make a cut. But maybe it'll be in a future book or something related to that. He actually doesn't get when we learn U.S. history in the United States. When you grew up, how much did they tell you about Franklin and science? It was always Franklin and politics, but uh, not so much of the science. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I mean, about, the one thing we hear about is the experiment that he never did, the kite thing. Of course, he didn't actually do that. No one, nobody did that. Hmm. He mentioned he suggested it, but he didn't actually fly a kite in the, in a thunderstorm because then he wouldn't have lived to uh, to be you know older and be involved in the American Revolution and everything that he did connected with that and after. Hmm. Yeah. I don't remember what they taught us in school. The, I know it wasn't a lot. So that's why I read a lot of stuff in my free time. It was always like, yeah. well, like they'd have like versions of history. That's kind of where probably this, this question comes from a little bit. But like they would take, I remember like the fiction book. It was like this green weird thing that you, they get like a mass compendium of like a bunch of stories. And they like, they butchered Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And so I was like, they like made the elf. I don't know if you're a big fan of like Lord of the Rings at all, but like they made um, the dwarf king uh, Th uh thorin yeah thorin like marry the elf guy elf guy who's now a girl in the story i was like why'd you do this oh, wow. leave the story like yeah. tolkien did not write this like you guys should get like that's why I, I like i don't think you, you know you guys did anything like that but there's like artistic license i don't know what's wrong with the school i went to I but uh, <laughs> i hope it's not one of the gender confusion things <laughs> it was, it was i don't know they no. just changed it for no reason and then my teacher kept calling yeah. it mount dome instead of Mount Doom. And so I guess maybe I just didn't have the best. Yeah, I had to like go outside of school to get education. Um, but yeah, like Benjamin Franklin is a, is a great one. You were going to list another one, but then I interrupted. What was uh, another one that you liked? There was some, uh, one I remember cutting was one that probably was a good idea to cut. Um, I was on the topic of the question, does the moon influence menstruation? After all, the uh, it's an obvious thing to put in the book have that topic in there because in so many different languages the word for menstruation menstrual cycle is the same root as the word for moon the moon that orbits earth and ancient people believed that there was a connection but we don't have really any reason to think that there is there just aren't enough data showing any connection physiologically uh, with with uh, lunation uh, lunation being the cycle of uh, lunar phases as they appear to us observing from Earth. Um, there's a lot of speculation about it. There are a lot of uh, kind of uh, new agey kind of uh, people who just assume that there is a connection, but there isn't. We just don't have, uh, there's a very um, broad range. Uh, there's, very, there's a very wide range of uh, of length of the menstrual cycle in, in human women. Uh, you know, some, some women are 29 days, but uh, many are not. You can go a little shorter, you can go a little longer. And our closest living relative, the chimpanzee, has a cycle somewhere around 35 days. So nothing close to the, to the lunation cycle. Mm. Uh, so, no. Um, could we keep doing studies on it? Sure. But because the answer was coming out negative in, in my vignette that I was writing, the publisher thought, okay, so 
that's probably not a good one to keep because basically you're you're writing about how the answer is no to something that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, know, I, I think the moon just gets like, um, it gets a lot of attention for things it doesn't deserve. Like in that regard, like um, I know like people think that more people go to the hospital on, on full moons. That's just because people <laughs> notice it. It's like they, they it's like, oh, something's happening. So then people like look to see it. Then it's like has a confirmation yeah. bias to it. It is totally confirmation bias. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. There's so, a lot uh, of stuff. Yeah. The, um, but in terms of stories for the book, um, do you have, like, I don't know, if, is there one that you think that really like helps people understand like how cool it is of, of uh, something that you wrote? Is there like one that like when people are like, hey, this is your book and you've told it to 100 people or something like that, that they tend to enjoy to learn about? Yeah, well, I you know there, there, are two, there are two angles on that. One angle is that I found out a few really cool, interesting facts about the history of the moon that just kind of makes you think, wow, wow, that's, that's pretty cool or that's weird. So, for example, and some of them I have on this little promotional postcard that's got cover of the book on the front, and on the back it's got um, various facts about the moon such as um, the very first author in history, meaning the first person to sign her name uh, in her writing, was connected with the moon. It was a lunar priestess in ancient Mesopotamia. Her name is Anhedwana, lived about 4,000 years ago, something like a little more than 4,000 years ago. Uh, Not the first writer, but the first writer that we know about because she actually thought Oh, I'll put my name at the end of what I wrote. And, and that's why, so in a way, the moon is connected with the very beginning of the literature, of poetry. She wrote a lot of poetry about the moon. Uh, so little things like that. Another cool thing, did you know that um, in the early 1960s, after President Kennedy announced that we have to go to the moon with people, land a human on the moon, and we didn't have the technology to do it yet, we had 15 minutes of human spaceflight experience. This was a couple of weeks after Alan Shepard's suborbital flight. A few minutes of weightlessness. That's it. And he's like, we're going to the moon. Um, the United States was so eager to be able to do that, that NASA was seriously considering sending somebody on a one-way trip to the moon, which would be a lot easier than a two-way trip. Mm-hmm. and just keep resupplying him for years and years until we had enough technology to take him up and bring him home. Can you imagine being that, that person? Would you volunteer for something like that? Be on the moon uh, for an undefined amount of time. You're like the guy in The Martian mm-hmm. where he's on Mars and he doesn't know when they're coming to get him and so you're growing potatoes and here you're on your last potato except from the moon, you can see Earth really well, and you're like, oh, it's, no, it's 1973, and uh, are they thinking about trying to come get me back still? And what are they doing? Oh, wait, uh, Nixon, uh, possible impeachment, Nixon resigning, that, that was the focus by that time. And you're like, hey, I'm here, I'm on the moon, I'm on my last potato. So little things like that, I found out. Um, what was the question again? How did we go? There was another angle I had. 
No, I, I did not know that, that they were thinking about just like letting someone sit on the moon and just refueling them until that, that is, that'd be horrible. But I, I bet there's someone who would like it. Yeah. Today you could, you could be online, you can hang out, but in those days, I mean, you know, you could listen to transmissions from Earth. Uh, you could watch the Nixon resignation and all that stuff that happened in the early 70s and the Vietnam War, but that's it. You could watch Flintstone episodes over and over, uh, Bugs Bunny, and then whatever shows, I Dream of Genie, all, the, all that stuff. We still have radio, right? So you could, you could kind of yeah. communicate with people. You could have like, like you know, you keep yourself busy. Yeah. yeah. It would be okay. It wouldn't be too bad. Yeah. I imagine it would I imagine it would make it harder to like retreat from space. Kind of like we, we sort of did. Like after the yeah. Apollo missions, like we didn't go back after a while. But if we have someone there, I don't think we'd abandon them. I feel like no one would allow that. Well, I, don't, I don't think they would have abandoned them. Yeah. One thing it really would have done is it would have forced us to build a more powerful um, rocket because um, there were three different ideas about how to get a person to the surface of the moon. And the most obvious first idea, what, um, what Elon Musk is uh, going back to now called direct ascent, where you have the very same craft that lifts off from Earth actually arrive at the surface of the moon. That's called the direct ascent mode or the direct ascent architecture for a lunar mission. And that was to be called the Nova rocket. And it was, would have been way more massive than the Saturn V rocket that eventually took people to the moon. This was what Werner von Braun wanted to do originally, a huge rocket, take people to the moon, but it would have taken until the middle 1970s to have that rocket ready. And it would have landed something like 40, 50 tons on the surface of the moon uh, that could then have enough fuel to get back, to take somebody back. And that, that's sort of what they would have been doing probably uh, to get somebody back from the surface of the moon. Hmm. Uh, but who knows what sort of uh, obstacles they would have had. Every single stage for that rocket would have required a brand new factory to be built. Uh, whereas with the Saturn V that they eventually used, they only needed to build a new factory just for the S1 stage, the, the lower stage, the stage of those five F1 engines. And then everything else, they were able to build in factories that they already had. So that was a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was reading that, um, I read a lot of stuff from you. So if this is like, if I'm quoting you, uh, to you, I apologize, but, the uh, that they were, um, that they like took s- stages of Saturn's and then like smashed them into the moon to create moonquakes. Yeah. Like, yeah. why? who thought of that? Yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds like so crazy. Like, I feel like they just all like, got in a room and was like, what's a bunch of like crazy ideas. I'm like, yeah, it had like good science reasons, but I would never would have thought of like crashing a, a Saturn into something. It was the geophysicists who thought of that. I, I don't know, you know like by name who did, but there was, there were, they had geophysicists working on the science team. And if you shake up the moon, there, there, there are natural moonquakes, but you can make your own moonquakes simply by, uh, you can explode things on the surface. You can bang the surface. If you just um, hop around in a spacesuit near your seismometer, you're going to create vibrations that you can then pick up on the seismometer and they will give you some data, but those data will not give you really too much information about the large structure of the moon. It'll just be the local environment. But if you bang the other side of the moon, 
then the sound waves will go all the way through and you can get a lot of information as to uh, uh, the structure and thickness of the, of the lunar crust versus the mantle underneath and, and even what's all the way down inside. And especially if you have seismometers spread uh, through different regions of the moon. And so we're about to uh, celebrate the 50th anniversary of Apollo 12, which is really when the science of Apollo got in a high gear. There was some science done at Apollo 11, but it was not, it was really an afterthought compared with the, the engineering goal of simply getting humans to the surface and not having the humans not die. And so um, with, uh, for, for example, on Apollo 11, they had a, a mini version of the packages of equipment, of experimental equipment that later missions set up on the moon, which were called all set stations, which stood for Apollo Lunar, um, Apollo Lunar Science uh, Package, all set. And um, Apollo Lunar Experimental uh, Package, so that's what the E for all set was. Those were nuclear powered. They had radioisotope generators on them. And that meant that all your equipment, such as your seismometers, because we're talking about that experiment right now, could function for a long time. Whereas with Apollo 11, uh, they didn't have, uh, they have batteries. So you can only have a really short, short length, you know, short, short time functioning uh, equipment uh, just to do a quick experiment at the moment. Although one piece of equipment from the Apollo 11 package that didn't require any power, the, the laser reflector experiment, um, no, that functioned for years and years and years. And in fact, it still functions. It's a device that has various mirrors set up in a way that if you shine a laser beam uh, on the instrument from any direction, it will reflect the light back from in the same direction from which it came. And they set those up on two other Apollo missions, Apollo 14 and Apollo 15. So there's three different places on the near side of the moon where we can shine laser beams and have it reflect back and get extremely precise measurements on the distance to the moon. And you can do that over time. So you can measure the, uh, the rate, the velocity of the moon's um, moving away from Earth. And it's so accurate, you can even measure continental drift that way. And because of that, we've actually been able to get precise measurements on how fast the moon is moving away from Earth due to the secular acceleration of the moon, resulting from the tidal forces, the same forces that cause the ocean tides, is gradually drawing angular momentum away from Earth's spin, thereby slowing down the spin of the Earth as the moon gains altitude away from Earth. Um, we got very precise. We've known about angular acceleration. We've known about secular acceleration um, way back, like since ancient times, um, there was a uh, there was a um, a philosopher, um, Seleucus of Seleucia, who had some inkling that something like this might be happening. Uh, of course, not with all the physics and everything. He was one of the only people who believed Aristarchus that Earth orbited the sun and not the other way around. Now, Aristarchus was an ancient Greek uh, astronomer, uh, the first person we know about to say that 
Earth went around the sun and not the other way around. And the way we came to that conclusion has a lot to do with the moon. There was a lot of measurements he took of the moon, and you can learn why and how he did that in my book. Too much beyond the scope of this broadcast to actually go into the details of how he used the moon to figure out that Earth went around the sun. But nobody really believed him in ancient times. He, they wasn't taken too seriously. But Seleucus did, did think it was a good idea because Seleucus was measuring, he was like interested in ocean tides. And he thought that the, um, the patterns of the ocean tides were too complex uh, for Earth not to be moving. And it was better explained by having the, the, the uh, relative distances and positions of the Earth, Moon, and Sun changing all the time. In other words, that it's a sun-centered universe in the mm -hmm. way they thought of it. But much later, uh, we get up to the, uh, the turn of the 18th century around then, you have Sir Edmund Haley. And he's in the book. And Haley really kind of figured out this idea about um, uh, secular acceleration of the moon. And by this time, of course, Haley is the guy who uh, discovered Isaac Newton, who was totally influenced by the moon. Newtonian gravitation, we wouldn't have had that if the moon hadn't inspired Isaac Newton. Uh, that's how he developed the idea, with Haley's help, with the funding and getting his... Uh, his Principia published, and all of that. And then you get to the 19th century, the George Darwin, physicist, geophysicist, who is the son of Charles Darwin, who, um, who further developed the idea. And his calculations showed him that the moon has not only been uh, moving away from Earth gradually, but he extrapolated backward. And his calculations told him, this is, of course was off, but told him that something like 55 million years ago or something more along those lines, the moon was actually inside of Earth and that Earth must have somehow blown up a piece of itself, uh, thereby opening a big chunk out of the Earth's mantle, creating the Pacific Basin. That's how he thought the Pacific Basin had been created and why there's a Pacific Ocean. But this was before the idea of continental drift and plate tectonics, and we now know why there's a Pacific Ocean, why, you know, why the continents have the positions that they do. But we're talking about the 1870s, and George Darwin really is one of the first people we know about to come up with an idea, of really a scientific framework for um, uh, what's the origin of the moon. Although it is reminiscent of a much older idea about the origin of the moon, going back even before Seleucus, a couple hundred years before that, to the philosopher Anaxagoras, who thought also that somehow the moon started as a rock that Earth had flung out into space, uh, which for those days that was a really crazy idea because uh, he was basically saying that it's just a rock in the sun. Also, he was saying it's a hot rock. And he was saying, look, these aren't deities. They're not, it's not a sun god and a moon god, uh, which a lot of people by that time thought also probably there are natural objects. Uh, things can happen due to natural forces and the gods are not involved. This is, this is all part of what Carl Sagan called the Ionian Awakening. The idea that um, 
things can happen for totally natural reasons without the intervention of Zeus or Athena or Apollo, but uh, or Artemis, uh, but simply because that's how things were. It, it, this started with a philosopher, Thales of Miletus, uh, who I think he became famous really because he was, he was a good businessman. He predicted an all, a really good olive harvest. So he bought up all the olive presses and he got rich that way. But another thing he predicted was a, um, a solar eclipse. And it's thought that the way he was able to predict that was because he, he understood the Babylonian astronomy, which by that time had gotten pretty mathematical and able to predict when there would be an eclipse. Uh, and using the Babylonian perspective, he was able to predict there was going to be a particular eclipse. And there was a war at that time between the Lydian Empire, which controlled Ionia, where there were these Greeks like Thales, and the war was not good for their maritime business, for all the trade and everything. They wanted the war to stop. Uh, between the Lydians and between a couple of other empires in that, in that area. And um, Thales approached the commanders and told them, look, you got to end this war. The gods are really upset with you. I've been, I can hear the gods. I can hear what they're saying. And they want you to stop and to show that they're serious. Next Tuesday at 3 o'clock or whenever, they're going to blacken out the sun, turn day to night. And the, you know, the commanders are like, oh, you're crazy. Get out of here. But then it actually happened. His, his prediction of the eclipse is right because he was able to do the math. He didn't understand the reason for the eclipse. We have no reason to think that he knew that, oh, the moon blocks out the sun. But he knew the mathematics of it. And he was able to predict that eclipse and stake out the, the Lydian generals. And they ended the war. Not only did they end the war, he was able to negotiate good terms for all the, the Greek Ionian cities. And he was such a hero that people started flocking to his city militant to study philosophy with him. And they came up with all possible natural explanations for various things that up to that point had been attributed to, to the gods. Why are there earthquakes? Oh, well, maybe continents, um, he had this idea that maybe earth and continents formed by the deposition of, of silt because he had visited Egypt and he saw that at the Nile River, deposits little silt and gradually it makes more land. We thought maybe whole continents are built up that way. The continents might kind of be floating. And if continents are kind of floating land, well, if a big wave from the ocean comes and hits the shore, maybe that's what's shaking us up and causing earthquakes. Not really what causes earthquakes, but the point was he had something that you could falsify. He had an idea that said, wait a minute, you know, if that's a possible way that you can get earthquakes, maybe we can go test that. Why don't we have somebody sit on the beach and if there's an earthquake, monitor whether you got this big wave or not and, and then we can find out whether it's true or not. It's the very beginning of proto-scientific thinking and it was driven by the moon. Hmm. And there are a lot of other examples of this all through history. Anaxagoras is another one. He, um, he was um, thinking about the moon and the sun really because he was trying to solve some really big philosophical question, which was, you know, what's everything made of? What's all the, the nature, uh, you know, is it like one 
element underlying everything. Like Thales thought everything came from water. That's the underlying element. And there were other philosophers in Ionia who thought there's an underlying element, but it's not water, it's something else. Heraclitus thought it was fire. And Maximides thought it was air. And everything came from air. Uh, and then, um, but there were other people a little bit later who thought, no, it's more than one element. And so the most famous one is Empedocles, who thought, ah, there's four elements. There's, there is air, there is water, and there is fire, and there's also earth. And everything is like a combination, putting those different elements together in different combinations. That's Empedocles. He was, uh, he was one of the people trying to unite kind of different takes on philosophy, the very, what we would call the scientific group of Ionia, which was the group that appealed to Carl Sagan, but also the group on the other side of the Greek world in the, in the colonies in Italy and Sicily, they had a more mystical view. That was people like Pythagoras, and people like um, Parmenides. Parmenides might have been the first person to notice that, oh, the moon shines by reflected light. But he was very mystical. He didn't really get the idea about uh, things being natural versus having some kind of woo-woo force underneath that we just never understand. Um, but, but the philosophers, Empedocles, um, Anaxagoras, and another one, uh, Democritus, uh, they were trying to come up with a little more complex way where it's like, yes, it is all natural, but it's not just one force. It's a bunch of forces. Empedocles thought it was four elements. Um, Anaxagoras thought it was just a huge number of them, like not four, but you know, millions or billions of them. And it ended up being an idea called panspermia, where, which means many seeds, so seeds all over. And from that, we get the idea of life moving around the cosmos from world to world, uh, there's a modern version of it, the idea that meteoroids are carrying microorganisms in them and that origin of life on one planet might really have started on another planet. We might, that could have happened in our own solar system because Mars cooled off earlier than Earth did. Mm -hmm. uh, we get meteorites from Mars all the time. They're meteorites from the moon. We know that everything is moving around the inner solar system. And in a way, that's kind of a derivation of the old uh, Anaxagoras idea. But there's a twist to the story of Anaxagoras that I go through in the story. Um, Wait, actually, he, uh, um, he got dissed. <laughs> the, um, actually, if I, if I can, I wanted to get back to the um, the Apollo 12 stuff yeah. a little bit. Now, I'm a big fan of history, so like I know I can sit here and just listen here, but why not Apollo 12? That. <laughs> What, what the Apollo science taught us is that this whole idea, we kind of take it for granted now, don't we, that, um, that um, impacts by space rocks is a major shaping force of all the worlds, not just of the moon, but of all the worlds of the inner solar system. We know because of Apollo that there were impacts, and there was a period um, more than three billion years ago when there was a particularly high number of impact events going on and there were impacts on earth impacts on the moon and we still get impacts all the time we could be impacted at any moment that's why we're trying to uh 
get to a point where we can constantly monitor possible potential impacts that could wipe us out. So we have to wipe out major population centers on Earth. And this all stems back to Apollo. We've got the data uh, telling us about the, the, the importance of impacts and shaping uh, the surface of the Moon, of Mars, of Venus, of Mercury, and of uh, the Earth um, from Apollo. Yeah, the, um, so I know the Apollo 12 had a lot of science going into it. And so with anything, there's always like, what don't you include? I'm wondering, is there anything that, any experiments that that you wish they would they could have included if they could add like plus one is there like an experiment you wish they could have included i wish they could have drilled down deeper into the moon than they did they only went down a you know a meter or so or less i wish they could have had equipment that would just go so deep that we'd be getting really from a totally different environment we were able to conclude uh from from all the missions even from the first two from apollo 11 and apollo 12 when they looked at everything in the Lunar Receiving Laboratory in Houston, they were able to conclude beyond a shadow of a doubt that the surface of the moon is lifeless. And we don't need to worry about back contamination. Um, there aren't any lunar life forms, but of course that doesn't tell us about what's deep down in the moon. There's a whole um, ecosystem of organisms deep in the rock of the earth. Uh, there, there could be that on the moon too. That's still a question we would we would want to answer when we go to the moon, and we might be going down in the lava tubes and going down in other features of the moon, and then drilling from there and seeing what we could find that's very different from the six landing sites of, of Apollo, and for that matter, of the landing sites of um, some un, unmanned missions, including uh, three uh, Soviet Union uh, uh, landing sites from which they they took much smaller amounts of lunar samples. And then there's going to be a, a, a Chinese sample return coming up in the Changi 5 mission. And um, there'll be some other countries doing some, some sample returns from the moon. But by far the bulk of the samples that we have from the moon, we have so much more from Apollo uh, because those were humans taking enormous amounts of, uh, of lunar material from the surface. Now the, the uh, Soviet missions took, uh, you know, grams of material. We took kilograms. We had hundreds of kilograms and pounds of something like eight, 800 something pounds of lunar material. And some of it is still, um, is still sealed up because we've been opening it little by little so that as we get better technology for analyzing lunar material, we still have some that's pristine. Uh, from the days that we had people on the moon collecting the material. And we have it from different regions of the moon. We have lowland material, such as from Apollo 11 and Apollo 12, and we have highland material. And the, the difference between the highlands and the lowlands is huge, and it's telling us a lot about the moon, but it also leaves up a lot of questions that we still need to answer about the moon. For instance, one of the things that we've known since 1959 when the Soviet Union became the first um, country to photograph the far side of the moon, is that the far side is very different from the near side. On the near side, we all know the man on the moon, or some cultures call it the rabbit on the moon, uh, where there are these um, darker looking areas that come together and we imagine different shapes like that. Those are the lowland, the, 
the, the Maria, the seas. We call them seas because in the 1600s, there was an astronomer, an Italian astronomer, who came up with all the names for everything. Um, and he, he called them seas and everything's a sea or an ocean, like the ocean of storms, which is the biggest lowland area uh, where Apollo 12 set down and where we might be sending future missions because um, in a different region uh, of this, this part of the moon, there's, um, we think there's a system of lava tubes under the surface um, in an area called Marius Hills. And that could be a really good um, place to put a lunar base, a lunar colony, because we can, we can get in there and we could have um, good protection against space radiation. And we could even seal up areas like that and have an enclosed um, pressurized area where we call that paraterraforming. As opposed to terraforming, where you actually create or transform an entire atmosphere, which is really hard to do. It would take centuries, possibly, unless we come up with some better technology. Uh, you can seal up cave systems and have a really, you can have room to build cities in there and have it sealed up and pressurized and have people living in there. Um, a lava tube system would be a nice place to do that. The lava tubes are, are little tubes that are left over after there's a lava flow and then the lava drains out. Yeah, I think there's some really interesting pictures of, of some caves like that in China. Or at least I'm picturing some really big caves. Like sometimes people picture caves and think the ones that people like Splunk in, which are generally small, but um, there's some really, really big ones even on Earth. The uh, Kind of a silliest question before I get to the final wrap-up ones, but the... Um, if you had to go, and maybe you'll just pick the moon, like it's the, the, the place you want to go, but if you could go anywhere that isn't Earth, and uh, assuming you could survive it, you know, like have a nice life there, where would you want to go and why? Well, if you're saying any place that isn't Earth, and we're assuming we have the technology to get there in a reasonable yeah. amount of time, okay, I'd, I'd want to go to another, another star system with, uh, with an Earth-like planet that has, uh, that has life. Uh, or even another civilization. So that's not going to be in our in our solar system. We're not going to find another um, another technological civilization. That, that, that we're sure about that. Okay. Well, we're there could be one under the ice sheets. We're not going right. to find that a moon of a Saturn is hollowed out and there's been a secret civilization like watching us in there. Uh, but um, we 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 are. I think we're going to find my, microbial life on a whole bunch of other worlds in the, in the solar system, which is going to give us another, another perspective. And the big question is, will, will it be different life? Will it just be the same life where it has a common origin with Earth life? Or will it be a second datum in biology where there's been an independent origin? And we have ways to figure out whether it's the same life or whether it's, whether it's different. And, um, you know, I think that'll be in the solar system. Right? There's some really good candidates, Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn, Europa, one of the moons of Jupiter, Mars. Um, there, there are a lot of places where we might find that. There's some hints that we might even have had some uh, preliminary uh, hints of, uh, of microbial life on Mars from the, uh, the Viking. Uh, the Viking program during the early during the mid 1970s we sent two one billion dollar uh, lander craft 
into the um, the surface of Mars. And so I just got my, I'm outside and the wind just blew away one of my... Yeah, I thought someone took your stuff. I was like, oh, that's mean. <laughs> They're stealing his food or something. Like, Jesus. It was a promotional postcard of the book. Which is, so someone will find that. And there you go. Viral marketing. <laughs> it, no, I'm not saying that, that Viking discovered life, but I'm saying there are a lot of questions. I, the jury is out. There are three groups of, there are three, there are three thoughts on this. Uh, there's at least half of the of astrobiologists or more uh, still think that it's an absolute negative that one of the three Viking biology experiments in the mid-1970s only picked up um, non-biological chemistry on the surface of Mars at the two locations, uh, Utopia Planitia and, and, uh, Crises, uh, and Crisis Planitia, which are thousands of kilometers apart. Uh, there's another idea, a minority idea, but including the, the principal investigator of the experiment that may have been positive, called the labeled release experiment, is that it absolutely did find life. But there's a whole maybe group in between, and maybe um, it could have been a positive uh, result, or but it could have been buried in, uh, in a chemical non-biological reaction. It could be some combination of that. And I think there's a way to find out because the, there is a version of that experiment that instead of basically feeding um, little snacks to samples of the Martian regolith and seeing is there anything in there that finds that food tasty, it divides up the molecules that you're using as food into the left-handed and right-handed form. So biochemically, mm -hmm. um, Organic molecules can be left-handed or right-handed in a way that's analogous to your left-handed or right hand, yet you can never superimpose on one another in three dimensions. They're mirror images of one another. And life has a preference for one mirror image form or the other image form. Uh, such as left-handed amino acids versus right-handed amino acids, or left-handed sugars versus right-handed sugars. If we were to do a different version of that, what I think was an ambiguous result experiment from Viking, simply repeat it, but in a more sophisticated way, and we were to find that uh, we do get a positive reaction, but only with either the left-handed or the right-handed form of the molecule, well, that's definitely right. Mm -hmm. And we would also be able to find out if it is positive, is it reacting to the same mirror image compound that Earth life reacts to? Or is it reacting to the opposite one? If it's reacting to the opposite one, then we know not only is there life on Mars, but there's life on Mars that evolved separately from life on Earth that originated separately. And that would be a huge discovery in biology. It would change everything. It would change our, we wouldn't have just one datum in biology. We'd have the second datum. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we could start generalizing from there and start looking at biology the way that we look at chemistry and physics as sort of a, a fundamental property of the universe rather than as a special case where it's like, Okay, biology is something where you have hereditary material in the form of DNA, and you have four different 
uh, four different bases that are like letters of the alphabet and we put those together in different combinations. That could be just an extreme special case and you, of so many others that you can have in biology. Where's that gonna take us in terms of uh, biotechnology and creation of uh, synthetic life and what we can do to environments? Uh, it's, it's unimaginable. I mean, it's just understanding something at that level. If you think about an analogy from physics, in the middle 19th century, when uh, James Clerk Maxwell came up with his uh, really complicated equations explaining the uh, relationship between electricity and magnetism and predicting that there should be these invisible waves and people would be like, oh, that's interesting, that there could be invisible electromagnetic waves, although what would we ever use those for? <laughs> and now how are we doing this interview and transmitting and recording? I mean, we're totally based on this totally, what seems like a totally theoretical, interesting scientific theory developed in the mid-19th century. All of our technology is now based on that. I mean, if you could come up with a few of the most influential people in the history of technology, Maxwell has got to be like way up there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, along with Newton and, and uh, Einstein, and but it, it's just it's just incredible. Where are we going to go with this generalized view of of uh, biology that we could get from astrobiology? Wait, um, why? I, I like I think you mentioned it. I'm I'm picturing Europa, but there's another moon that has like an icy outer shell, which would be able to like like absorb a lot of like like a technology civilization existing. I'm not saying there is like advanced life on those moons, but like, why, how do we know that there's not like, wouldn't they, wouldn't we not know unless we drill down and like send sensors? Cause like the, the hydrogen in the, in the, in the ice would be able, like, would block a lot, wouldn't it? So I'm, I'm pretty oh, sure that's, no, yeah. yeah you, you cannot know a hundred percent. Maybe there are um, some there. Yeah. But, but, but I, I don't, I mean, if there is a, if there's an advanced civilization in an icy moon, you know, why are they not here? I mean, it's the same solar system. It's well, not you can like go at different times. Millions of light years of uh, of space. Yeah, but I mean, we we've only been we've only been a uh, a spacefaring civilization for sixty or fifty years. Um, obviously, if we if we knew there were, let's say, uh, you know, cave people. You know, Stone Age, a Stone Age uh, civilization uh, in the outer solar system. I think the funding for our human space program would have been a lot, you know, bigger, and we would have been, we wouldn't have a lot of missions there. We've been studying them, and probably, uh, you know, we probably would would have exploited them too by now. But we would have been there. We would would have made ourselves pretty obvious. Um, you think everyone would have this kind of Star Trek Prime Directive where no, we're going to be very ethical and not and not do it. Even if we here in North America decided, well, for ethical reasons, we're not going to go over there and do anything. I mean, what about all the other nations? I mean, it's it's uh, it just seems implausible that given uh, geological time and cosmic time and it, that perspective on time on uh, how long has humans been around and how long has Earth been around. And if we were to, to find 
a technological civilization that's only a drop ahead of us. A drop ahead of us is what were we talking about a drop, like 10,000 years, 100,000 years. If we don't blow ourselves up in a nuclear exchange, which by the way, nuclear war still is the number one danger that could destroy our civilization. Right? Climate change is real, it's happening, it's, it's our fault, but that's a slow death. Uh, we still have thousands of nuclear weapons pointing back and forth between the um, the old what the remains of the Soviet Union and the uh, the Russian the Russian uh, nuclear weapons now and our nuclear weapons from the Cold War and mostly pointing at other weapons and um, in fact Mikhail Gorbachev just really recently came out in public and said this is the number one thing that can destroy us. And if there are, whether in the outer solar system or from across interstellar space, if anybody's watching us, I'm sure that they're thinking these people are, uh, you know, on a pathway to destroying themselves with nuclear weapons and nuclear technology, um, blowing themselves up. Uh, not that they're going to destroy themselves through climate change. Maybe climate change will trigger a nuclear war, but. Um, and there are other ways we could, I mean, there have been a lot of other natural uh, um, disasters that we could suffer that could wipe us out as well, which is another reason to improve our technology and get ourselves to be a Kardashian of one civilization where, where we have enough control of our, over our planet uh, that we can, whatever, prevent a massive, massive uh, super volcanic eruption that could wipe us out like you kind of it wouldn't wipe us out right like the like you're thinking about your centimeter right the one in the northwest where you're at like that wouldn't wipe us out it would just like put it would just fuck us up a lot i mean it would it'd mess up the that was that was mount st helens and no i'm not i'm talking about something that would make mount st helens look like uh you know the smoker didn't put out his cigarette on yeah but isn't there a super volcano up in the northwest passage like i thought there was a big north like the big one up there a super volcano well there are there are some potential super volcanoes but we can have they're talking about like massive volcanic eruption as like things like that cause a permian extinction that almost wiped out everything um we haven't we're not going to have like a permian extinction because of our climate change we could get rid of ourselves okay i don't want to downplay climate change because it is something bad it's something that's our fault it's something we got to change our policy about that i'm you know i'm totally with the um, politically with we got to do something about climate change but i don't i just don't like when it gets to be like the in vogue thing that oh this is now the number one thing okay let's not forget about nuclear weapons <laughs> but but I, but since we are talking about climate change Let's no. also not forget about nuclear. There are different kinds of nuclear, okay? When we're talking about nuclear that can destroy us, it's nuclear weapon, not nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is actually something that can rescue us from climate change. Mm -hmm. We're not going to blow ourselves up with nuclear energy. What we're going to do is we're going to, it's the only thing that can fill the power grid right now, today, instead of building more coal fire plants and, and polluting the environment more 
uh, and we have a really massive problem with science education here, with STEM, because if you say the word nuclear, people's hair like raise up. Yeah. Of the how many candidates are running for president right now, like 20, 30, you know, I can think of one who's not scared to talk about nuclear energy as, you know, in an unequivocal, unequivocal way. It, it, it's Cory Booker, by the way. And that, it's not an endorsement. I'm just saying but, that Cory Booker is the only one I've ever heard who's at that level of, you know, national attention where he will say, you know what, climate change, um, children, all over New Jersey with you know, horrible asthma attacks because of all the pollution. Nuclear energy is the solution that we have available to us. And it's not Chernobyl. Our, our nuclear technology is very different from the old Soviet Union. It's different than yeah. Theirs was kind of yeah. self-imposed a little bit. The, yeah, but, 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 I don't know. I, just, power. Yeah, uh, just, <laughs> just to get back to, well, I don't know. When we were talking about, I don't know how we got on nuclear energy. The, the the trouble thing was like ours are better, but the um, but in terms of like when you were talking about like life, I just noticed like you, you said like oh we we know there's not like advanced life, but I was just saying like like we we're assuming that they could be more advanced, they could be less advanced. I'm just saying like I think that would be a good place to hide them. I'm not saying that I have a conspiracy theory yeah. <laughs> that they exist there. I just was saying that in general that that we don't know like definitively that there's not like you know, advanced life going on there. I, yeah, but, we um, do not know for sure. We have no way to, no way not to know or not to know. But in terms of parsimony, you have to come up with, um, never, there's nothing, there's nothing that we've detected in the solar system leading us to think that um, the best explanation is that there's a, uh, is that there's a civilization. You no, know, even if something like a very uh, um, low density body orbiting another planet, uh, such as the Martian moon Phobos or Deimos, that, oh, it must be a spaceship and not just a small moon orbiting Mars. Okay, there are explanations uh, that are way better. And even when you talk about things across interstellar space, like Tabby Star, when we talk about Tabby Star, that's the star that has all that dimming, that, oh, are they, you know, are they building like uh, some kind of a superstructure to collect the energy? Are they a Kardash of two civilization there? Well, that's one explanation, but there are a whole bunch of natural explanations that keep coming up, and we shouldn't automatically go to the the extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. The um, the people they tend to like take like kind of normal phenomena and then they they make that jump. But so the the final questions I have for you are, if uh. Is there a question you have? And I think maybe it's just like, where does life exist? Because you kind of like said this earlier, but what is the question you have that you don't have the answer to? Well, I think it, I have so many questions about the origin of life and about the, uh, the, the, um, the distribution of life in the cosmos. I, I don't want this whole thing I said about Tabby Star and about no hollowed out spaceship orbiting Saturn. I don't want anyone to get the idea that I don't want there to be an extraterrestrial. I want there to be an extraterrestrial civilization. I want the Vulcan. I want, um, maybe I don't want the Klingon, but I want the Vulcan. And, uh, well, I certainly don't want the Borg. The Klingons actually, they make peace with them later on. So, even that. But, um, you know, it's uh, it's a Drake equation thing where it's a question of, the, the higher the probability, uh, the farther away they're going to they're gonna be. So 
that that's the issue. Uh, but yeah. the further we expand out our you know the realm that we're considering, the greater the number of civilizations are going to be. But I think the huge, huge unknown factor, other than all the biochemical stuff that I'm interested in as an astrobiologist, now I can name so many things, but they probably bore people. Just you know, we don't want to get too much detail here. But the longevity factor, the very final variable in the Drake equation, which is L, how once you get through how many planets, how many planets with an Earth-like environment, how many planets with you know enough of a uh, a way to get energy and organic chemistry and all that, yada yada yada. But how long does the civilization actually last before it nukes itself? Okay, or natural disaster, but most likely nuclear war. How many extraterrestrial civilizations have been destroyed in a nuclear war? Probably most of them. Uh, but how, are we going to be one of those? Or are we going to be the unlikely few that actually makes it through what Carl Sagan used to call technological adolescence, where we, when we get through that and we get some kind of a wisdom, get ourselves to be a multi-planet species, because there does have to be a planet B for us to survive, all right? The slogans you hear about, oh, no planet B, and therefore we gotta protect Mother Earth. Well, yeah, we gotta protect Mother Earth, not because the planet's gonna get destroyed. We're not gonna destroy the planet. We're gonna destroy ourselves. Our planet will be here for billions of years longer, just like it was here for billions of years before we were ever here, before dinosaurs were ever here. It doesn't, Earth doesn't need us, okay? planet will do just fine but having an environment that can support humans well the planet doesn't need that we need that and um, on the other hand though even if we if we sustain our environment we still have to be on other worlds because we're still going to be wiped out if we wait long enough mm -hmm. uh, so we got to do both and, so uh, and I think that by spreading ourselves around the solar system is going to give us more of a cosmic perspective that will inspire us more to sustain our own environment here on Earth. Yeah, um, I agree. Multiplanetary is a good thing. The, um, so the next question is, um, what is something that people listening could help on help you out on? Is there, I know you have you know your book out, but is there anything in, in the world that's going on that you'd love people to, I don't know, read up on? Just whatever. Is there anything you need help with? Well, I, you know, I would bring in that whole human survivability thing. People should keep a cosmic perspective and um, you, we, do need, we do need to support science because that's really the only thing that's been rescuing us and will continue to rescue us uh, as we move forward. Um, preserving nature is great, but don't get into this, um, this, this illusion, that, this delusion, I should say, that um, everything natural is so wonderful and beautiful and which you know unfortunately we have that sort of mentality like we name we name diets for the stone age like the paleo diet okay you wouldn't want to live in the stone age okay you know you know why people didn't get type 2 diabetes and cancer in the stone age because they would die at like 19 years old okay that was that was the paleo way of living um, we've we using medical technology like vaccines and like purification of the water system. That's how we've doubled, tripled, and soon to be quadrupled the life expectancy 
uh, squaring off the life expectancy. It's not, we're not doing it by, um, by going back to uh, how things were hundreds of thousands of years ago. Uh, yeah, but but in terms of the movie, I was I actually wanted to tie it down to more specific questions since it yeah, does connect with the book, which is about the moon. There are a lot of unanswered questions about the moon, I mean, such as why we have this difference on the near side and the far side, which in turn will will help us answer the question of where the moon came from. We actually don't know where the moon came from. We have some really good ideas. My book gets a lot into that. I go through uh, four and a half billion years from the moon's origin, all through you know, ancient Greece and ancient Babylonia, taking things through the Middle Ages. I spend probably much more time on the Middle Ages that, that get left out a lot in the history of science. We've got the Arabic astronomers and with a lot of questions that gradually led to Copernicus, realizing that uh, um, Earth is in fact moving. It's not, not stationary. Um, and then getting things into the space age. And by the time we're in the last half of the book, it's all about the technology building up in the 20th century. Sometimes not, not very uh, pleasant things in the history of NASA, like um, Nazis being involved in the origin of, uh, of really the level of rocket technology that ultimately would take us to the moon and beyond. Um, and some other things, you know, like the first animal in space, the drug Laika, did not have a very uh, um, painless death. She suffered. Um, with heat, heat exhaustion and probably a lot of, uh, probably a panic attack. Uh, that's how she died. She didn't just kind of peacefully go into hypoxia and just kind of fall asleep like the Soviet Union told the world at the time. Um, so, you know, I have, I have positive and negative in the book, but with an ultimately positive message from that. And so, so a thing you could do that I think would be good for you, but also for me is check out my book. It's, it's available at an increasingly, an increasing number of places. It's in the, um, uh, the big chains like Barnes and Noble in the United States and Indigo in Canada and certain chains in uh, the UK. Uh, a few places and a lot of online places and an increasing number of independent bookstores. So depending on what your situation is, like if you, um, if you want to find a book at a really, at a really good price, like right now it's on half price on Amazon, so it's $12.47, which is a really good buy. You can get it there. If you're someone who kind of doesn't want to use Amazon, uh, you want to support your local independent bookstore, check if it's in your local independent bookstore, and if it's not, have tell the bookstore about it and say you should get this. You should get this book in the store. I can name particular independent stores that have it. You know, like um, well-known places like the Strand in New York City has it. Uh, another pretty famous place called the Book People in Europe, in Austin, Texas, where you are. Book People uh, has it. Do you know that store? Uh, they had it on display for the summer Apollo 11 display. I don't know if they have it here now. And um, I keep hearing of more and more places, more places. But no, I'll, places. I'll have it in the show notes. There's no worry. Yeah. 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 And libraries, you know, if, if you're someone who can't 
really can't spend any money now, check if your local library has the book. Uh, I, can, I know the New York Public Library System has a book. Um, Dallas Library System has it. Sometimes I Google these things and find it. The um, uh, Cincinnati Library System, and, and, and it's about to down into the uh, Richmond, Virginia Library System. I know that because I, I have a like, old college friend I just found out he's working in the Richmond Library Systems, and I just mentioned, oh, did you have my book like get ordered there? And he's like, okay, I'll put in the order. So if you're in any system, you can just ask. And if they'll take a look at it, they'll see that it has a Library of Congress number and has an ISBN, and, you know, they'll have someone who'll have to review it, but they'll put the book in the system. You, you could actually be helping me more by getting my book in your local library system than by going to buy it in a store. If you, but it's, there's an advantage to buying it because then you got this book with a full page illustration on every page and you can read little by little it's a conversation piece. You could put it displayed on your bookshelf or on your coffee table and get it full of accurate science information in there. But if you want to get into the library, that's good too. You know there are more than 100,000 libraries in the United States alone. So even if, even if no one buys the book in the bookstore, if every single library system puts it in the book, in the, in the, in the system, that's, that's quite a, you know, a lot of circulation for me. It's a lot of, it's a lot of sales because the libraries are the buyers. If there's someone that you want to have me interview, let me know. I will add them. There's still a little room and I'm filling, finishing up, but you should get a lot of B content this month. They talk about B week. We're getting a B month. Additionally, remember to check out in the show notes the link to the website for the crowdfunding campaign that I'm going to be running soon. If you've liked the the podcast, if you've liked the episode, if you want to help out, check the link, sign up, share it with your friends, and every every person, every time you get someone to sign up, any of this type of information is another chance that you're going to win. One of the things that I'm making, and what I'm making is basically a modern beehive. I'm talking stainless steel, aerogel insulation, sensors, Uh, data analytics all that stuff easily accessible 24 7 and that's gonna be the crowdfunding campaign but don't forget to subscribe and leave a review we can be found on twitter at lowell was here facebook and on the website learningwithlowell.com also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every monday new episodes every tuesday and new blog posts around every thursday remember to share and tell your friends please and thank you